Good morning. So good to see you this morning. So good to see some friends of mine that I only see about once a year uh, with the singing school. Last year, because of COVID protocols and things like that, we hosted the singing school. Uh, we were the plan B, and this year we're the plan A, and that's exciting because I love seeing these folks, love getting to visit with them during the week. Um, many of you probably uh, know, but if you don't, we, uh, this is the Texas Normal Singing School where they spend a week together and just sing and learn about singing and become better song leaders and singers, so that's, that's awesome that they're here with us. And those of you who are visiting with us, including the singing school folks, uh, we are in the middle of a series uh, called DNA. We're looking at what makes us, us. And last week we determined that God first has got to be where we start. So that's the foundation. God is first and he is the authority overall. And so this morning, we're going to look at what it means to truly be Bible-focused or Bible-based. You know, football games are interesting. You have these huge guys who put on this armor, who go out with no regard for their body, and engage in a series of head-on collisions for the whole game. But then you have another group of folks who are not as powerful. These folks are usually smaller. They make a lot less money. They are the men and now women who are dressed funny in striped shirts. And even though they don't have the same power as the football players, they have all the authority. It's interesting that these big behemoths can go out there and knock the snot out of one another, yet the truth of the matter is, no matter how powerful they may be, no matter how strong they may be, they don't have authority. The authority belongs to these folks. So much so that if one of the big, powerful football players doesn't abide by the rules, the referee brings down the hammer. Actually, what he does is he takes out a little flag and throws it at him. That's his way of saying, you done messed up. Even though the football players are powerful, the authority resides with the referees. The least powerful people on the field, it seems. And what is true in a football game is true in a spiritual realm as well. The devil is powerful, but he doesn't have authority. He's not deity. The only authority he has is what you give to him. He may be powerful. He may knock a lot of folks out. He may be able to tackle you and cause you to fumble. But he doesn't have authority. He needs a carrier. He needs a vehicle. The devil operates by consent and cooperation. So don't give it to him, right? That's what Satan was attempting to do to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. You remember after Jesus is baptized... He goes into the wilderness for a wilderness experience that lasted 40 days. This is where he was weak and vulnerable in the flesh. And that's when Satan decided to tempt him. Satan was looking to get Jesus through manipulation and lies to transfer his authority. Because the devil doesn't have authority. He's powerful, but he doesn't have authority. But Jesus was already in partnership with someone else, right? And so how did he deflect the temptation of the devil? Through the word, or in this case, the words. It is written. It is written. It is written. Over and over again, he combats the word of Satan with the word of God. In other words, he allowed the voice of God to be the loudest in his life. Satan could not force him to turn those stones into bread. 
He couldn't push him off the pinnacle of the temple. He couldn't make him bow down and worship him because he didn't have that authority. Because Satan operates by consent and cooperation. He needs a vehicle, and with Jesus, he couldn't get it. Because Jesus already had a vehicle. He already had a carrier. He was already in partnership with someone else. Notice what's written in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is not only the Son of God, He is the Word, God's Word. This Word was there at the beginning of time. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word is Jesus and God. Skip down to verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. (laughs) So the word walked around. And in verse 14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about the ramifications of that. That even though the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he was recognizable by some. Many did not comprehend who he was. Because by some's estimation, he was a blasphemous imposter worthy of death. So the very people he came to reveal himself to were the very people who rejected him. It's interesting because Jesus wasn't beyond comprehension. It wasn't that he couldn't be understood. It's just that some refused to comprehend. Never again in Scripture is Jesus referred to as the Word of God. But right here in the Gospels, we find this theme of a complicated Jesus speaking complicated words. The living word speaks living words, and the very people he came to speak the living words to were the ones who rejected him. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it, as John 6 and 60 tells us? What does he mean, they ask in John 7, 36? Jesus tells the Jews, my words find no place in you. But Jesus makes something abundantly clear, something that we need to heed now more than ever. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So, no matter how difficult it is to understand, your spiritual livelihood depends on you understanding. Doesn't matter if his words agree with you. Doesn't matter if you, uh, if, if you think that they should be done another way or if they should be said another way. Doesn't matter if you agree with the way Jesus articulated them. It's authoritative. His word is authoritative. Therefore, we, we have no other option but to submit. We have no other option but to bow down. When the Word became flesh and came to this earth to reveal Himself, it meant that we have no choice but to take heed, to listen with an ear of discernment and a heart of obedience. Doesn't matter, again, if if it's difficult to put into practice. Doesn't matter if it's comfortable or convenient. What matters is that we are attentive to it and intentional about doing it. Now, look with me at Luke chapter 4. We're setting up something here So this is not just an academic exercise, I want you to know. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, because his message was delivered with authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone, what business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, it came out of him without doing him any harm. 
and amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, and the news about him was spreading into every locality of the surrounding region. I want you to take note of that line, and they were amazed at his teaching because his message was delivered with authority. Now, apparently, when the scribes and the religious leaders got together to teach in the synagogue, they, they, they repeated opinions of other scribes. They also, uh, of course, talked about their man-made traditions. They gave their opinions. They spoke about the, the traditions of men. And perhaps they had mastered the art of saying nothing well. You know people like that? They get up to speak, and they say really eloquent things, and they get done, and you go, that was really great. What exactly did you say again? It's like they took off in the plane, but they didn't land the plane. At some point, you got to land the plane, right? What gives Jesus' teaching teeth? What was the meat? What was the force behind it? It wasn't his charisma or his booming voice. What gave his words authority was the fact that they were not his words. They were the words of God, and the people knew it. God's word screams authority. Jesus simply repeated them. But it's not just the words that Jesus spoke that were authoritative. It was the fact that Jesus was the Word. The Word was giving the Word. Jesus is the will of God in person. Jesus came to show us what God looks like. He came to reveal the heart of God. Jesus is God's Word, God's message, embodied for us to hear and see. He teaches through words and through actions. He articulates and demonstrates the very heart of God. In other words, Jesus is God's show and tell. And as Jesus is teaching... A man suddenly comes in and interrupts his class. It's a demon-possessed man. And he cries out, leave us alone. What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And by the way, isn't it interesting that the demons acknowledge Jesus for who he is, even before the religious leaders do? Anyway, Jesus immediately puts an end to the interruption by commanding the evil spirit to come out. And what we see in this episode is the word confirming the word. Jesus spoke with authority, and he backed it up with authoritative action. By driving out the demons, by controlling the weather, by healing the disease, by raising the dead, Jesus left no doubt as to the integrity of his word. Now, if you go to John chapter 6, we find Jesus giving a rather disturbing sermon, at least to the people who are listening for the first time. He talks about how he is the bread of life and how everyone who eats his flesh and drinks his blood will have life within him. And this caused quite a stir, quite a controversy, so much so that many people left following him. He gives them the opportunity to walk away, even looks at his apostles and says, basically, you can go too if you'd like, because here's the deal. Because Jesus' words are from God, because they're authoritative, it's not like he's going and tracking these people down and saying, hey, wait, come back. Maybe I was a little too harsh. Maybe I came on a little too strong. Let's come back and let's talk about this over some coffee. It's not what he does. He's not about to do that. He's not twisting anybody's arm here. So he looks at the apostles and says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, of course, responds with, Lord, to whom shall we go? I mean, we don't have any other option here. You have the words of eternal life if we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus had just finished 
pointing out to the crowd that he was the bread of life. Now understand, to a Jew, bread meant teaching. And so Jesus was the teacher, but he was also the teaching. He was the word. And Peter was correct in stating that he had the words of life, but even more than that, he was the word of life. Hopefully by now you understand what we're getting at here. Jesus is the word in flesh, but he's also the teaching. Now, what was he teaching? Well, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus and the Word are one. Notice the parallels. We see it all throughout Scripture. Jesus is life. And the word of God is life. Jesus is light in a world of darkness. So is God's word. Thy word's a lamp unto my feet. Those who received Christ received eternal life. And those who received God's word received the same. Jesus was full of grace and truth. God's word is full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but they've seen Jesus. And they've seen God revealed through Jesus and through the word. You picking up what I'm throwing down? Jesus came to reveal the Father. Is that not what the Word of God does? Jesus came as the Word incarnate, meaning that God's Word had a face, it had a body, a manifestation. He brought a new Word from God, one that would be written down and shared for generations to come, and one that would quite literally change the world. Now, here's why I say all that. Here's the setup. So, to be Bible-based is not just to be people who read their Bible. To be Bible-based is not simply to be able to proof-text your way through an argument. It's not just believing right things. To be Bible-based is to be people of the person, not people of the print. Stay with me here on this, okay? We are not, as Christ followers, merely people of the book. We are people of the person, ultimately. To put it another way, the book points us to a person. John did not say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us on a page of paper. It's not what he said. Let us not forget that people of the Word means that the Word in the flesh. And we as Christ followers, or Bible followers, are both, right? It's not one or the other. It's not like you have to choose So I'm a Bible follower or I'm a Christ follower. It's and both because the two really can't be separated. You ever heard of this term? There we go. You ever heard of that term? Some people say it's not a thing. I absolutely believe it's real because I have seen it in action. Bibliolatry is worship of the Bible. Do you think we can make a God out of the Bible? Do you think it's possible to idolize Scripture above a relationship with God? Absolutely think that it is. Bibliolatry is taking the Word and detaching it from the Word. It's following the print, but not the person. Let me give you a very extreme example, okay? And I admit that this is extreme. But the Reverend Paul Hill was a preacher who was dedicated to the Word of God. He believed in the authority of Scripture through and through. Every day he got up and he spent many, many hours studying Scripture. 
But on July 29th, 1994, he got up, he studied scripture, and then he went to the abortion clinic where he was a regular protester. He went there armed with his Bible and a shotgun. And when he got there, Dr. John Britton was driving up one of the abortion clinic doctors, and Reverend Hill stopped him, went up to his window, and shot him dead in his car. And you say, how could a Christian do something like that? How could someone who is so dedicated to Scripture, who studied the Bible for countless hours a day, how could somebody do that? Well, here's what he said as justification. He says, Proverbs 31.9 states that God's people should defend the rights of the poor and the needy. He goes on to say, Proverbs 24 and 11 says, to rescue those who are being taken away to death. He'll point out the fact that throughout large portions of the Bible, God condones and even commands bloodshed and violence in order to do his will. Armed with the Bible and a shotgun, Reverend Hill thought this is the only option to protect those who could not protect themselves. Now, I realize that's a rather extreme example. But we as Christians can kill each other for different reasons, not literally, but figuratively. We sometimes beat people over the head with the Bible. We sometimes kill people in our hearts when they don't agree with us. We shoot down those who don't believe the way that we do. The church is really the only organization that shoots its wounded. And we can be guilty of that as well. Maybe you're thinking, well, Chris, do you you not believe that Scripture is important? Absolutely, I believe it's important. Not only do I believe it's important, I believe it's the authoritative Word of God and that we must not only buy it, we must invest in it, we must follow it with all of our heart. I believe totally, I am all in on what Paul told Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God. And beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully uh, capable, equipped for every good work. All scripture, not some of it, all of it. That's why I've told you before, it drives me nuts when people say, well, we don't really need the Old Testament anymore. It doesn't really have any use for us today. No, no, no. All scripture. The Old Testament sets up the New Testament. You don't have a story without the Old Testament. You got to have it. You're not a Jew and you're not living under it, but you got to have it to understand the complete story. The Bible comes with its own set of instructions on how to use it. You'll remember that Jesus was constantly calling out the religious leaders and experts in the law for their misuse and misapplication of Scripture. In fact, I don't really think it's a stretch to say that these religious leaders were making an idol out of Scripture. They were certainly doing so with the Mishnah and their own man-made oral traditions, right? They even refused to listen to God's word when it was offered as correction, which prompted these words from our Lord. You examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus says you're missing it. You're missing the whole point. There's a story here, and you're missing the story. These religious leaders who supposedly knew the scriptures like the back of their hand were using them for an endpoint destination rather than a stepping stone to Jesus. And notice that Jesus never tells these experts in the law that they're studying scripture too much. He never tells them that they need to stop studying so much and start doing. No, never does that. But they had taken the story. 
They had taken something that was alive and turned it into remote, or excuse me, rote and mechanical. That was the problem. They had used the scriptures as a code of conduct and a, and a protocol for piety. The living, breathing story had been turned into something that was no longer living and breathing. It was dead. It was mechanical. It was rote. And that's where, that's where some of us fall short today. Some of us read the Bible as if it's an end in and of itself. The scriptures are presented as a, a checklist of thou shalt nots. As long as I do this and don't do that, then I'm good. There are some who have studied the scripture for the sake of, of building up an arsenal so that they can use it as ammunition when they face off with somebody who doesn't agree with them or maybe so they can win a debate on Facebook. Some have studied the scriptures diligently, but their application of the scriptures leaves something to be desired. Do you believe that it is possible to be a Bible believer and not a Christ follower? Absolutely. This happens when we fail to comprehend that the Bible is not a standalone document. This is not a rule book. This is not simply a proof text for our arguments. The Bible is not Siri. It's not a devotional book. It's not even a manual for how to get to heaven. The Bible is an autobiography about God. It is a story about God written by God. And we need to understand that story. We need to comprehend how we fit into that story. In John chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now at the time that these words were written, his voice was audible, right? Or at least when he said these words, his voice was audible, put it that way. But just because we no longer hear them roll off his tongue today, doesn't mean that they're not still authoritative. We can still read them on a page, we can still read them after the fact, and they lose nothing in the authority department. Just as there are many today who read these words on a page and reject them, there are many who heard them for the first time who rejected them. But the point is, there is a voice, it is an authoritative voice, it is an authoritative message, and it is a word that we need to be listening to. Paul said these words, he said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I want you to notice what Paul didn't say. He didn't say that the power of the gospel was only in the words spoken or only in the words on the page. It's both. Whether they were spoken and you were there to hear them for the first time or whether you read them on a page, it's authoritative. And we've got to buy into that authority. That's what makes us, us. God first. Then his word. They go hand in hand. But the word points us to a relationship. That's where we so often get off track. It's not just about what you know. It's what you do with what you know, right? It's about taking these words and understanding what they point to. Or who they point to. They point to a relationship. Somebody put it this way. They said the power of the gospel comes through the message, the word, the good news that is embedded within Scripture, embodied in Jesus, revealed by the Holy Spirit, and stewarded by God. I like that. So this is the part of the sermon where we offer an invitation, typically. I want to offer an invitation this morning that if you have a, 
if you have a need that we can help you with, if you're someone that is struggling with something, maybe you're ready to take the next step in faith, we certainly are ready to help you with that as well. But often with the invitation, don't start putting stuff up yet. Typically, when we offer an invitation, we use certain words. And there's one word that we use a lot when it comes to discipleship. And it's a good word. It's a worthy word. And I like the word. I'm just not going to use it this morning. It's the word commit. A lot of times we talk about being committed as a disciple. Are you committed? Do you have a full-on commitment? And again, not a bad way to phrase it. But I think there's a better word. Because when we talk about commitment, we talk about a concept where we get to retain control, right? I can commit to a lot of things. And if my commitment level wanes, I can decommit from those things. I have that option. So January 1, I make a commitment that I'm going to eat better and work out more. By March 1, I'm done with that commitment. It was too hard, right? There's a lot of things that we can commit to. But commitment allows you to still retain control. So I have a better word for you this morning. Not have you committed your life to Christ, have you surrendered your life to Christ? If somebody is is holding a loaded gun and pointing it at you and tells you to put your hands up, what are you going to do? My guess is you're going to put your hands up. You don't have to sit there and go, well, let me think about this, and I want to decide if I want to commit to this or not. You know why commitment doesn't matter in that moment? Because you don't have that luxury. You don't have control. So there's nothing to deliberate. When there's no more control, all you're left with is surrender. So if somebody points a gun at you and says, put your hands up, you're going to put your hands up, right? That's the difference between commitment and surrender. Commitment says, I'm all in until I don't want to be all in. Surrender says, yes, sir. Whatever you say, because you're holding the gun. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. But here's the difference between somebody holding a gun and God. God comes and seeks for us to surrender, but he doesn't hold out a gun. He holds out his hand. And so we put our hands up. And he says, give me your hand. And we take his hand and we follow. We follow his words. But we follow his words because we're following a person. The relationship informs the action, not the other way around. Remember John chapter 14, the very end of that chapter? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, it's love, it's the relationship that informs everything else. So if I love him, I live at the center of God's will. If I love him, I follow. If I love him, I'm about the Father's business. And the beautiful thing about it is when you surrender full on in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the devil has no power over you because you've given all authority to the Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for this opportunity to be together. God, we love this family. We thank you for this family. May we always act as family. May we always interact as family. And may we be family when we leave here. May we, as we scatter from this place, glorify you in all that we do. May those 
who we come in contact this week see you living in us. May we point them to the relationship. Thank you, God. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So Clinton's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need this morning we can help you with, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.